Well, good morning. Good morning. Ah, uh, back to back to normal. That actually hurt for a second. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody needs to warm up. How you doing? Uh, you know, I'm just saying I'm I'm hanging in there. I, this is uh, I'm normally a very upbeat, positive person, but this mold situation at my house is 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 slowly crushing my soul. What do you mean? What's I, going on? So I basically we discovered some some allergenic mold. It's not black mold. It's not going to kill anybody, but we discovered some mold. And so therefore the process to get rid of it is to move out of your home for a week and they essentially fumigate it and do everything. So I had to put all my clothes, all my shoes, all my linens, all my towels into a lot of trash bags and and different things and then go wash them with borax. It's a whole thing. Hold on. Isn't this whole- the first week of school there too? Yes, yes, yes. So it has been super convenient. This, and then, <laughs> what? Super convenient time for them to have to do this. I know, exactly. It's like that's a, it's just, it's been, I think it, my brain has just been so overwhelmed with that AC issues, which have caused the mold. So it's all one big thing. But I have a team of people that are coming this coming week to fix my entire life. Please, please, God. Let it happen. <laughs> and then hopefully I can get a little bit more semblance of normalcy. Well, at least you're hopefully towards the end of it. Or is it another, like another week? Oh, yeah. No, it's, I mean, we're not. We're moving out on Tuesday. So that's two days from now. And then, then it'll be a week later that we get to move back in. Jesus. So. Jesus. I know. <laughs> Oh, what a Lord, how, like you I can take Jesus. anything. That is, I need Jesus right now. Woo, Jesus takes the wheel for real. Woo. Um, now I'm a little Which is probably a little bit ironic after our conversation. I know. With with Brad. Today. I know. We, we, we have a great, great guest on the podcast today, Mr. Brad Gardner, but we'll get to that in a second. I've been, yeah. I had a really, I had to send in a self tape this week for the play, A Few Good Men, written by Aaron Sorkin. Yeah. That was really cool to get to kind of embody that Tom Cruise role for the theater so i hope i get a call back keep you posted yeah i mean so like how does the when you film yourself though like do they can you send in whatever part of it you want or no they choose the scenes they tell you from this line to this line you do this scene with a scene partner and they're usually off camera and you just do the you do the self-tape and you send it in and then they say okay we'll have an in-person callback because of covid still out here they're our union and everything. They they want to minimize as much in-person auditioning as possible, even though we eventually go into rehearsals and everybody's together anyways. So Yeah, but, you know, might as well not have everybody exactly. that's trying to get into this. Exactly. But was that common before COVID? Like, did no. you film it? Well, you would film okay. if you were like if I was on a national tour, if I was out of town for an audition, you could put yourself on tape then. That was that was more common. But now it's more People are investing in their own like home studios because oh, you yeah. have to do so many self-tapes. I'm actually going to be doing that in my room very soon. I'm going to be making one wall like my self-tape wow, your wall. wall. Yeah. Your audition wall. Because it's – Just like I'm going to build a booth exactly, for myself. Exactly. <laughs> you know, when you do – when you use something so frequently, you, you know, you want, kind of want it to be – you don't want to have to set up everything every time. It would be nice to just walk yeah. in and there it is. But yeah. But getting to this podcast, y'all, y'all aren't ready. Y'all aren't ready. And I will say, you know, we – for everybody out there, we wanted to get some good background on what he's done, what what Brad has done in his in his career because he has really just done some incredible things. But you know, if even if you're not like a Broadway person and you're not like drawn into that part, like just wait, y'all, because it gets 
you know, we get into it as far as, you know, we've had a lot of people on this show that are, that are gay and have had to navigate a lot of things because of that. This is a totally different look at that. This is next and I level. Just want, yeah. I just think everybody needs to, you know, prepare themselves because it gets real. And we, Todd and I basically had one giant goosebump the entire time. So. For sure. And and while we're on the subject, y'all, can y'all please go and follow us, subscribe, hit that subscribe button because we yes. really, that that tells us that you're listening to it and it just, go follow us on Instagram. We, uh, we're, we're, we're climbing in the followers. We really are. We are. I'm very, thank you to everybody that is, that is following. Like now you get updates on when we have new episodes and what they're going to be about. And I try my best to, I'm, of my 50 jobs that I have, I try my best to pump out as much as I can to give you all a glimpse uh, into the interviews with reels and, and audiograms and all that. So then, then you can go and get a taste of, of each little episode before you, you embark on that adventure. So I think it's worth it and it helps us in, in so many ways and helps us get like more guests, different kinds of guests, and definitely send us messages. If you think that people that you want to see on here, like let us know issues you want us to talk about it. We want to hear it. So just go do all that stuff. All right. So let's talk about Brad, Laura. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to give a little background on Brad for everybody out there. So Brad Gardner is a music creative, newly based in Los Angeles after a decade in New York City, where he had a successful career as a Broadway and touring musician. Most recently, Brad was the associate music director of the first national tour of Disney's Aladdin, as well as the music director of the Japanese language premiere of An American in Paris in Tokyo. In New York, Brad worked on the Broadway productions of Mean Girls and The Addams Family, as well as the hit off-Broadway parody Silence, the musical based on The Silence of the Lambs. He's worked extensively in regional theater from the Kennedy Center to Goodspeed Opera, and now a proud resident of Los Angeles, he is on the music production team for Netflix original films while still freelancing on the side as a vocal coach, arranger, and music director. So we are very proud to present Brad Gardner. Well, hello there, Brad. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's super exciting to have y'all because y'all know each other so already. Exciting. Oh my God, that's we right. Do. We we wow. met in New York many, many, many moons ago. Brad was a friend of a friend and then I roped him into playing um, uh, Guy Stroman's uh, <laughs> class. Yeah, and so... And we became. And how was was that a crazy endeavor? Or yeah, I mean, it was an acting. Cl- I mean, Brad, it was an acting class. He's amazing. Oh, thank you. I can. And uh, yeah, Brad. Brad can sight <laughs> read anything. He's he's incredible. He's just you put anything in front of him. He just play. He plays it. Yes. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, that's way more talent than I got going on over here. So, um, <laughs> you know, I would like to hear. I think everybody would like to hear a little bit about kind of your background. And and where you um, kind of grew up and how you became involved with music and the arts in general. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm from North Carolina and I'm from Raleigh. Okay. So I used to vacation in South Carolina all the I time. What parts? Had, had the, we always go down to Cherry Grove and rent a beach house for a week in the really? summer, every summer. That is so random, but I love it. <laughs> Where's Cherry Grove? I don't know where Cherry it's Grove like is. Just north of Myrtle Beach, like right above Myrtle oh, Beach. Oh, okay. It's a little bit classier. <laughs> no offense, Myrtle Beach. We love you. Keep listening. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's still... Still a suburb of Myrtle Beach. 
<laughs> okay. So it's, you know, it's a good Myrtle Beach in general. Wonderful. Love you guys. So you grew, you know, you made your way down here sometimes. <laughs> so I guess it started when I was like seven. My mom always wanted a piano as decoration in her living room. And, you know, Southern Belle, you know, how decorating the house has to have a piano to make the living room look beautiful. And I just started picking it up and like sitting down and playing at it when I was little. And my mom and dad were like, do you want to take piano lessons? And I said, sure. And did it. And they, you know, they sometimes had to push me to practice, but because I think it was something I discovered and not something they pushed me into, it it was something that felt like mine and something that I really liked doing and escaping into growing up. So that's really how it got started. But uh, a majority of my career has been in musical theater, which I didn't touch until college at all. I thought I was going to be a music teacher, maybe a classical pianist. That's all I really knew until I got to college and I had my advisor say, why don't you try musical theater? Like it's good, like side money as a music director, as a pianist. And so he got me involved in some local things around Smithfield, North Carolina, and a couple small theaters in Raleigh, North Carolina. And this was in the middle of college. And that's kind of when the bug hit me to be like, oh, I could pursue a career in the arts and do this full time. And so I remember like, I think the the craziest part of my journey to getting to New York is my junior year of college, the local symphony, it was called like the Cape Fear Wind Symphony of Eastern North Carolina. They were going to do Rhapsody in Blue and they auditioned all the piano players at my college, Campbell University, to be the soloist for it. And I got it. I got to do it, which was really cool. And I got to write my first ever bio. Oh, it's very exciting. Which is always a big, <laughs> a big milestone. But were you singing or just playing the piano? Playing piano. Okay. Okay. I just trying to, you know, you know me, I'm trying yeah. to figure out all the, the verbiage for all this stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> well, that's pl- awesome. Playing piano with like, I think like 40 or 50 musicians, like really cool event with the conductor, like really big. And, you know, I was shitting my pants a bit because it was really <laughs> scary, but I got to write a bio. And in the bio, this is like in, you know, the mid, the turmoil, like the turmoil, the, like that's the wrong word, but like the middle of like this like spin of doing so much theater in my life. And I was like, my bio, I wrote confidently, I'm going to move to New York and work in musical theater. Listen, you put it out there. I know you <laughs> I manifested did. that shit. <laughs> and so after the concert, this woman comes up to me of the Campbell family. She came up to me and she was like, you know, I have a daughter that plays piano in New York City. So you should talk to her. Here's her email. Here's her number. That's all she said. So I went home and looked up who that was and found out her daughter at the time was the music director of the 2006 Raul Esparza company revival, Mary Mitchell Campbell. And I was like, oh my God, how crazy. So when I moved to New York, she gave me an internship a few months after I got there on the Adams family. And so like within my first year in New York, I was already working as an intern on a Broadway show. And it was all because tracing it back, I wrote in my bio at my little tiny school in North Carolina that I was going to go to New York. And suddenly someone who had a daughter who was a Broadway music director saw me play and connected it. Oh my God. I love that. That's amazing. That's really awesome. I mean, I I, I liked the bio story, but I like the bio story even, yeah. even more now because it was like, that was the launching 
point of everything. That's so cool. Who knew by writing that little confident statement that it would, you know, put you in touch with Mary Mitchell Campbell? I mean, that's crazy. And for those of you who don't know, she's a very accomplished music director on Broadway. And Brad, we know that you had a New York City career, like we were just talking about before moving uh, to Los Angeles. And some of the projects you worked on were Mean Girls on Broadway, The Addams Family, Silence the Musical, which was an off-Broadway parody of Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> I have hysterical. questions about that later. <laughs> Disney, Disney's Aladdin and served as musical director for An American in Paris when it eventually went to uh, Tokyo and won the equivalent of a Tony Award there. So all of that in, in, in itself is amazing. And what was it like making your Broadway debut? Uh, what show was it on? I guess we just answered that, but it was Adam's Family. And But how did it feel? Yeah, I mean, Adam's Family, that truly, well, I'll fast forward to say like my real Broadway debut truly feels like Mean Girls because Adam's Family, I was an intern and a rehearsal pianist mostly. So like I was so behind the scenes on that, even though it was my debut. But it was really cool to like get to go to work and like be in the theater. And that that was really crazy. But yeah, yeah. was that when Brooke, will, Brooke Shields was in it at the time, right? Brooke Shields, yeah. She replaced during that time along, uh, gosh, who else was there? Like Brooke Shields, Roger Reese. B, B. B. Rachel, Nate, Rachel Potter came in during that time. Yeah. But Mean Girls really feels like my debut because it was like, okay, I'm in the orchestra pit. I'm playing the keyboard book. Holy cow. And I remember the funniest thing like that sticks out so much about that day is it was a Wednesday. And if you know Mean Girls, on Wednesdays, we wear pink. And that was like a big night at the theater was Wednesdays because everyone wore pink to the theater at that show. I love it. And for, <laughs> and for some reason, that felt like it gave me put so much more pressure on me being in the pit that night. Oh, and also, by the way, this was the Wednesday before the Tony Awards on Sunday. Oh, no pressure. <laughs> and so it felt like super, super, super <laughs> pressure. But it was so funny because like I did it and it went and it happened. And, you know, I then did it many, many more times after that, you know, but I it was it was really cool. And I think the biggest takeaway that I got from it was that I still went home and slept in my bed at the end of the day and it felt like another day. And I was like, wait a second. I thought this was going to like change the way I feel about everything because I finally hit this thing, but I'm still myself at the end of the day. And that was like the weirdest feeling because I felt like I was going to hit this like a full feeling of like, I'm fulfilled. I have arrived. And I didn't feel that at all. (laughs) I mean, you know, taking the disappointment of not feeling that right away. I'm sure that over time though, you started to get that feeling after you get to an then you're asked to work on another mm-hmm. Broadway musical then you're asked to work for be the music director for uh what was it the American in Paris because I, I from reading right. your everything I've read about you that was kind of a its own evolution of like you started out doing it here and then you were put in charge of like the national tour and then you end up going to Tokyo, which you you told us a little bit beforehand about if you could kind of explain what, what happened there, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. I was the associate music director on the first national of an American in Paris. And to explain what that means is I supported the conductor. So out of the eight shows a week, I would play piano in the orchestra for six of those and I would conduct two. So I did that for about a year on the on the national tour. And then I left that and the music supervisor reached out and he was like, next year, this is going to Japan and I want you to be in charge and be the music director. So crazily enough, I ended up going to Japan for a little over three months where I was one of three people who spoke English and we did the show in Japanese. Wow. And that was super 
culture shock, wild. I, it was mind boggling every day going to work and not really knowing what was going on, but knowing the music. Yeah. I, I mean, did you and letting that be the language we spoke? Yeah. Through. So did you like learn, pick up a lot of Japanese while you're there or did you just kind of speak to everybody in piano? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I, I picked up a little bit and they, you know, while I was at work, they gave me a translator, oh, which nice. was really okay, cool. cool. There's something so funny about like, you know, these huge rehearsal halls and uh, to speak to that cast, you know, the, I think the Broadway company and the tour had 35 people that was like 25 and then 10 swings. So 10 people that aren't not necessarily on stage all the time, but they're there to cover in Japan. They didn't do that. They just said, okay, we'll just double cast, triple cast everything. So I think we had like over 60 people on the show. So we would have these huge rehearsal halls going where like cast A is working on one side of the room and cast B is on the other side of the room, like doing the same show in the same room, just like two sets of the show. But, you know, it's a massive room and I would just be talking like this normal, normal level speaking voice. And um, my translator would have a microphone like right up against her face and was like saying everything really loudly in Japanese that I was saying. And it was like such a power trip and so funny to be like, what am I saying? <laughs> Who knows? Hopefully she's like, you know, representing me correctly. Well, that I mean, congratulations on also winning an award for that, which is, you know, got to be feel pretty good considering you didn't speak the language when you were there. Yeah, yeah. It won like the it was like the best musical of what was that 20 Eight, was it 2018 or 2019 in Tokyo? It's awesome. But did really well yeah, for them. That's amazing. Well, so now we know you that you, you have moved, since moved to LA and you work for the oh so fabulous Netflix. I and, do. In music production. Can you kind of pl- explain to everybody what it is that you do when it comes to music production there and, and what's kind of your favorite part? Yeah. So yeah, I'm on the music production team for live action film. So that's all the non-animated Netflix movies that we self-produce. And so my job is to walk the music team hired on it. So like the composer, the music supervisor, that whole slew of people to walk them through the whole process and be there to support them with any live recording elements they need. So if we need to book studios for them. We need to like book their personnel to like make the recordings happen. We need to hire the contractors. We need to hire the musicians. Uh, I'm there to organize all of that. And then also to oversee the budget. And actually the coolest part of my job, which I've been doing even up to this past week is going to the recording studio and being in the room and watching it all come together. Wow. So you're basically running Netflix. It sounds like you have 800 <laughs> sure. jobs. Like, I just can't even imagine keeping up with all that. And that's just for like one, like, do they put you on like specific projects or is it like you're just called to come wherever you're needed? Yeah, we have multiple things going at any time. So it's never less than five projects at a time. All over too, right? Because you um, you mm-hmm. have to go to London often and you have to go, you know, like you're, I know you're always like booking studios and stuff over overseas as well, right? Yeah. So yeah, we record all over the world. So I manage all of that, making sure we have space. Space is really hard to find because everyone's, there's so much content out there. There's not a lot of big recording studios to support that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's my job to find out, figure out where everything 
goes and make sure that like a year from now we have a space reserved for something because it's slotted to record that. But you you originally started as a COVID safety coordinator and then you moved uh, for the music creative production team, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. And then now you've moved into a different realm, which is awesome. Yeah. So I did a year of just, oh man, that was such a crazy thing to be like working on floor plans of how the orchestra is going to be laid out. So they're all six feet apart, yet it's optimal for recording quality. You're triggering Make me right sure now. that the brass players have like spit, like they have um, puppy pads or foot operated trash cans for their spit to go into. What? So it's just not going all over the floor. How do you, where are they spitting from and, and how are they catching it? I just can't even envision it. Well, I'm sorry. It's just the, the grossest just, part of this is like in before the pandemic, no one ever thought about this. But you know, like all the curves of a brass instrument, they collect spit because you're blowing into them. And so often brass players just open these little valves and blow through the instrument and spit goes all over the floor. I have literally never thought about it's that. gross. <laughs> We're going to talk to Molly O'Connell about what she does with the spit out that comes out of her miniature tuba or whatever she plays. Um, that is too funny. Well, we know that you um, have, you know, obviously you pivoted from New York to LA and you kind of gave us a little bit of background that that was more for stability and some work-life balance. So what what did you feel was so kind of unstable about your life in New York and and Broadway that made you want to make that transition? I think for me, it's a combination of a couple of things. It's the schedule and working every night and really only having Monday nights off is such a weird thing for most of the world. And so it felt so in a bubble almost and that my social life was my work friends. My love life was my work. Like it was just, it was so uh, contained and I felt like I had no way to like open up you know, and be like a normal human functioning society. It was just like just this theater world that I was in. And I was like, I started to feel like panic, like I couldn't get out of this room. And going on tour actually started to open my eyes to be like, wait, there's people live outside of New York so much. They're, they're, the quality of life outside of New York is so different and so much better. Really? Yeah. So you kind of feel like that was definitely the right move for you all around. Oh, Yeah. And I had I got a therapist for the first time on that national tour of uh, American in Paris, and that's when I started realizing like she started me like maybe you're not meant to be in New York, and I, I resisted that so hard at the beginning, and and I don't know she it, it turned me because well, you put you had put it in your bio you had put it in your bio I know, I know. you already you already know. manifested you How can't could leave, you leave New York? I know I thought I would never leave New York truly I thought New York was it this is where I'm staying I'm never going anywhere else and then got there and was like oh wait I. There, I have many more priorities in life than just Broadway. Yeah. Well, that I mean, I love New York as a whole, but I think maybe some people are just kind of meant to visit. <laughs> That's me now. I am excited to visit. I have to go back in a month and I'm, I'm excited to be there for like four days. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's like the perfect amount of time, I feel like. So, Brad, this podcast really revolves around the discussion of trauma and overcoming hardships, as you know. And you mentioned that so much of your trauma was unpacked when you sort of went into musical theater. And what did you mean by that? And what exactly did you need to unpack? And how did theater help you do that? Oh, man, that's a that's a big question. Where do I start? I mean, I feel like it's such a stereotypical thing in the theater world, especially the people that come from the South to the theater world are many places. But I felt like 
I had never been seen or accepted just as a gay person until I was in the theater world. And that, that's such a that's such like a normal path for a lot of people. I don't want to discount it either. I feel like that's why it really resonated with me once I got to New York and I was like, oh my God, this community doesn't care. Like it's just, it's most of this community is that. Because growing up in North Carolina in a Southern Baptist community, going to the Southern Baptist K through 12 school, that was really brainwashing in a way that I didn't realize it, of course, because that's what brainwashing is. But it it was really challenging, you know, figuring that out and like getting out of that like brainwashy world of that Southern Baptist, not to, not to bash all Southern Baptists. Cause I think they're, you know, I, I, it's hard to like, I, I never want to like blanket statement something about this thing, but the world I was in was really toxic and figuring out that I was gay, but not letting, not having any outlet where it felt safe to talk about that because it felt like I didn't know what was going to happen if that came out. That was really hard. And so like fast forward, like through that whole process to getting to New York and finding theater or even like before I moved to New York and Raleigh, North Carolina, finding theater, it was like nothing in my life had ever felt that comfortable until I found that. And, and you said it was K through 12. So you so you went to a Southern Baptist school for for middle and high school and then you also had church on the weekends yeah it was the same school from five when i was five years old to 17 so i definitely had classmates who were there that whole time too i did not go to that church though it was they really did push my mom for her and i and my dad to come to that school to that church on the weekends but they actually never did that which i'm thankful for because it sounds like it was a, a pretty oppressive kind of environment already. So, you know, that that would have maybe been even more traumatizing. Or do you think you got enough of that while you're at school anyways? Oh, I, th- I think I got enough at school anyways. It, it Man, that place, it's funny. And just like thinking about talking about some of this today, I, w- I went down a rabbit hole yesterday looking at the their website and being like, oh my God, they're still doing this. Like this school is still operating like it was when I was there. And Wow, just it brought back so many feelings. And like, I read, like, I remember finding like their creed, which they made everyone recite in the twice a week chapel services. And I was looking at it, it was like, wow, this is still in my head. Like, if I looked away, I could keep, I could continue all these sentences. Wow. Oh, well, I mean, that's a long time to be there. So, I mean, like, yeah. Yeah. like you said, it's a little bit of a, a brainwashing. I'd like you to kind of elaborate on that. Like, what do you feel like they, you know, were some things that were kind of put into your headspace, if you will, that, you know, made you the most uncomfortable? I'm assuming, obviously, being gay and not feeling open about that. But, you know, what, what was the kind of the environment that you feel a little bit triggered by when you go and see their website? It, it's, it seems like there's so many rules. There's so many rules. And I remember actually every year before you start, they make every person sign this this contract that says like i will not go to the movie theaters i will not dance i will not listen oh to you were roll. real southern baptist not... like oh, i yeah. know southern baptist but that is some real southern baptist like could you not play cards probably not i don't think that was written in there but i mean there were things written in there too about like cannot engage in any homosexual activity cannot touch the opposite sex like covered all the beyond bases. all so of you it. had to sign wait a minute just hold the phone you had to sign an actual contract like every yeah. every year 
Yes. You wouldn't go to the movies. And I went to the movies. Like my grandma would be like, we're going to the movies. Like, yeah. come on. Like, and you know, the, the, the thing is like, no one was policing that because like, if you got seen at the movies, then like, you Somebody know, that was, was a bad thing. So it wasn't like really too. controlled. Or you'd see like, you see classmates at the movies and be like, I didn't see you here. <laughs> Brad, you and I both share that. We both grew up Southern Baptist. Yours sounds incredibly hardcore. Mine was too. The thing that always bothers me, and maybe you feel this way too, is that it's all masked in we're so inclusive. But oh, we're so, yeah. Really? But we're, oh, yeah. It's like, you know, everybody is God's children. You're all welcome. Just don't be gay. Ugh, or <laughs> yeah. go to the movies. Don't, and, if you, and if you are, yeah. don't talk about it. If you, you know, and it's a, the amount, the, the amount of repressed homosexuality in the church. I mean, I'm sure you saw people around. You're like now, now looking back as a grown ass man, you look back and you're like, oh, that person was totally gay and has a wife and yep. has children, but they are, uh, you know, gay as Christmas. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was looking even at like, who's running that school now. And I was like, I have questions about some of them. Like, it, <sighs> Oh man. It, and it's funny, like looking back at my class, there was only 24 people in my graduating class. And I know for a fact that three of us are gay. And I was like, one eighth of that class is out of the closet now. Like it's wild. Yeah. And it's wild too, that like they went out of their way to be like, yeah, you know, don't touch the opposite sex, but also specifically you, you people that might be thinking about touch, homosexuality, yeah. like just cut that right out because that's just never going to be okay. Yeah. And like to the homosexuality of it all, I don't, I'm curious that they still teach this class. Senior year, they teach a class called Worldviews where they talk about the Christian perspective on the world. And they talked about, I remember they talked about the separation of church and state. Like they said, it's like a one-way mirror. So like the church can infiltrate the state, but the state can't infiltrate the church. I remember learning that. So that what else? Like I remember they would like they would play us like condom commercials, like that specifically targeted like gays, and they would then have us like analyze why these were sinful commercials. I'm not kidding. This is people are nuts. Uh, this is like a uh, yeah. a new level, I guess. I just never. I mean, it. my parents grew up, my, my dad was kind of born on the border of North Carolina, South Carolina, upstate, all that side of the family. And then my mom was raised Southern Baptist down here. And they both had this shared experience, like mutually, you know, exclusive from each other, but that they would go to church camp and they would have to learn, they, they'd have to memorize the Bible and write it down on toilet paper to like, just in case, like there was some kind of like attack, like a Chinese, you know, because uh, this is like, you know, post-World War II, obviously a good amount post, but that there was still this fear that like we'd lose the word of, lose yeah, the, Bible? Like, the word of God. And it was like, I, and I remember them telling me that one night and I was just like, I'm sorry, what? And then they just both started reciting <laughs> like, Every line of, you know, each one of the parts that they learned and they are not religious. Like my mom's an, like a proclaimed atheist. And I think and a major part of it is because she was raised. I, I believe this is my theory was that she was raised Southern Baptist because it was like, no, like this is out of this world as far as, you know, compared to what, you know, and I don't want to sit here and bash all Southern Baptists, but it just seems like you know, when you're trying to put that kind of message out there, like that is traumatizing to people. 
in those formative years, I mean, that's really like just gets encoded in your brain. Like, I think I still filter the world through that lens sometimes. And I have to catch myself and be like, whoa, 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 whoa. How could you not, Brad? I mean, if you're doing that every day from, you know, K through 12, and I just can't, I can't, I can't imagine. And can you tell us about your, um, your parents and were they supportive when you came out? Did you have to hide the fact that you were gay in the, in the, obviously you did, but with the, with the community, did other people know? I didn't come out until like the end of college. Oh, okay. Probably from all that, uh, you know, brainwashing and scolding didn't help the process well, the sh- along. The shame, right? It's the shame. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I knew, like, I look back and I, I know I was, I started knowing I was gay when I was like 10 or 11 years old. Like, that's when I started to really realize it. But I think because I knew at that time I was so brainwashed by the school that that was like my moral compass. And so I, to me at that time, my feelings of gay were so wrong. And so I would like pray, pray, pray about it, pray about it, pray about it, act on it in the privacy of my room and then pray about it, pray about it, pray about it. And so like, I really didn't ever want to tell my parents at that point because not that, I mean, it didn't feel safe, but it also felt like something's wrong with me. I should address this before I let it onto the world. So it wasn't until probably the end of high school, I started like being like, wait, this is just who I am, which is funny because at that time I was disguising it by running harder into the church. So I became like the church pianist for everything at at school because we had twice a week service. I also became the president of the Saved to Serve Club, which was the missionary club, all the time knowing I was gay and like getting actually more used to the fact that I was gay, but I was hiding because I was like, well, if I'm in a leadership position in this church, no one's going to think I'm gay, which I look like at the world now. And man, that's so Oh my God, I was going to say, this is like like a micro example of like, I think a bigger problem within like even the United States, just like, it's always the people that are in these committees and stuff within Mm -hmm. Congress that are like the anti, you know, the pro-family, anti-gay groups that end up like all turns out, you know, most of them are gay. They're the ones. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. And it's sometimes at some point it, it flips. And I think that's what happens for me is like, I was like, I have to act on this and I have to like realize I can't suppress this part of my life. And going to, funnily enough, a Southern Baptist college, Campbell University, that was like my next stepping stone. But it was it was such a liberal Baptist school because when I, the year, I believe the year I started, they got kicked out of the Southern Baptist convention, my college, because they were ordaining women. And that was like, that was 2005. I can't, I literally can't right now. But, but, but were your parents supportive? So- Sorry, my long-winded way of getting to that, I think. <laughs> no, uh, no, we want to hear all is of like, it. In co- I think in college, I started realizing like, oh, this is something I can, I'm more confident in who I am and my relationship with this, and I can bring this to them. Um, and it actually took me meeting my best friend, Jamie. Her name's Jamie Howard. She's lovely. And we talk every day. Meeting her. And funnily enough, she was also in the closet. And so we became, I think, a little bit like each other's like beards. And like everyone thought we were together, but we weren't. Uh, And so we came out to each other first, which is so funny, which I think gave me like a safe space of someone to fall back on a little bit when I actually came around to talking to my parents. And, you know, I think they handled it differently. And 
you know, I think they both struggled with it with it in their own ways. And, you know, I think my mom and I, we, you know, we had our ups and downs of, over it and it took a while for us to get to like a really beautiful relationship on the other side of that. But I have never been closer to her now. And I think it's such a, you know, she didn't necessarily take it 100% well at the time, but I think that was her also just like trying to see it through a lens of religion and like this world she, the only world she knew. And so it's interesting, like watching our journey, me and my mom's journey in the past, you know, what, like 15 years or so since that's happened and like watching her religious journey grow into something that's more aligned with who she realizes she is and what she believes, not what she was brainwashed for 40 plus years to, to be, to, to know. So she grew up Southern Baptist. Yeah. And, and her fan, and I guess it's just been passed down, right? Totally. Yeah. It's just the world, you know, she's from Whiteville, North Carolina. Yeah. Oh, my God. Whiteville is where, oh, my gosh, that's just where some of my family is from. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's. I guess it's like we've, we've talked to several, you know, gay men and and we'd love to get any gay women out there that want to be on here, but uh, several gay men and they've, they've all a uh, wonderful way. Their family is very supportive about them coming out and, and, you know, kind of like new in a way. And, but like to, to hear that you were in such a anti, like, like, not, like explicitly anti-homosexual situation. And then, to, so you're battling with that and then you tell your parents and then they have to go through that whole process themselves and yeah. then you got to think about how many people they have to to tell or explain to. And yep. and that's like such a world shaking kind of thing. Well, yeah, there's social community. I mean, he, he literally had to sign a contract I mean, that's what he would I mean. not be it's gay. It's just like I can't. Yeah. And and I'm I'm grateful, I guess, that I said, well, your parents, do you think they subscribed to all of those rules exactly? Or were they a little bit no. more? I don't think they did. I think it's just what they knew. Like my mom, certainly. I think this was what she knew. And I think it's just the world she grew up in and the, it was familiar. And that's why she, that's why that world was there. What's funny is my dad was never really like in that world too much. Like my dad was very much like the the Wayne Dyer, like you'll see it when you believe it. Like he was always that when I was growing up. And like from my, through my religious perspective at the time, I was like, oh, this kook, like whatever. I don't know what he's saying. But to fast forward to when I came out, like he at the time was living, my parents divorced. He was living in South Florida. And I was remember like being down there and telling him. And he was just like, okay. Like it didn't phase, it didn't phase him at that time which was really interesting. And I don't know if maybe it faced him behind closed doors a little bit, but like face to face, it was just like the most normal conversation and kind of shocked me. And he was so loving from then on too. And like, it's just, it's so interesting. Like, you know, how I look back and I see how he was always there, like questioning the religion and being like, you should go to a public school. You should do this. When I And I was like, no, this is the world I know. I'm not going there. And I now I look back and I'm like, wow, he was really more open minded than I realized at the time. But like he wasn't, you know, trying to stuff it down your throat on like the other side yeah. that was definitely, yeah. you know, trying to keep their claws in you. I don't know. I, I hate yeah. to, you know, I don't want to disparage anybody's religion, but it just seems like with all of uh, people don't really consider how that can ultimately 
really affect like an entire, not just one person, but their entire family, the entire way that they view the world. I mean, it's all just kind of starts to feel a little culty. So um, I, one thing that Todd did tell me was that you were named one of the most successful people in your, at your school and then later found out they took you off the list and they learned you were gay. Yeah. When I moved to New York, like I was on their successful alumni page on their website. And then at some point in that, well, I can actually know when it happened. They realized I was gay and they took me off the successful alumni page. And I know I'm probably the most successful person out of that school. It's a small school in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm not being egotistical. I just know. No, no. I mean, so say you're a pretty big deal. So the people on that page are like, is a pastor's wife in oh Cary, God. North Carolina. Like those are the successful people. Oh God. Okay. Yeah. Now I know what we're working with. Um, <laughs> but I mean, like, how did that make you feel? Like it, it's, I mean, if, uh, I don't know, in a way I would almost be like, well, of course they did. But also yeah. you assholes. Yeah. That's how I felt. I was like, I don't care. Like they don't judge who, who, what success is. I don't like whatever they can think that it's fine. Like at that point when it happened, I was like, I don't care. I think what frustrates me more is that somehow they still keep track of my address. I don't know how. And they still send me money for like donation, like send me things for donations. I got one like two weeks ago here. And I was like, how did you get my, I've lived in three places in Los Angeles. How did you get this address? Like, I, I don't know where it's coming from, but I still get mail from them to be like, donate. I'm like, Okay, I'm not successful, but you want my money? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I know I'm not allowed to be on the website anymore, but yeah, I'll totally give money to this. Like, oh my gosh, what hypocrites. And you know that God is giving them the addresses, so that's what's going on here. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Good point, I mean, Laura. well, I, I'm just like incredibly proud of you for getting out of that. I mean, I don't know if you really had much of a choice because if you feel that way, like how can you stay in in that same environment? But I imagine with that much just constant barrage of of everything that, you know, it, it was a little bit, like I said, a little culty. Like, I mean, there's there yeah. are deprogrammers for a living out there in the world for a reason. And and it seems like you had to do some deprogramming once you kind of got to New York. So I just commend you for for going through that journey. Oh, thank you. And I, I still feel for, I pray for, no, I like the people who I know are still in that spiral. Like they're still just swirling around that and that's all they know. And the more they're in it, the more they believe it. And that's might be who they are till the day they die. And that like, that breaks my heart a little bit too. Just like knowing that impact is still there. Right. Brad, I know your um, your father and your mom uh, divorced when you were younger, and I understand that your dad's long-term girlfriend was HIV positive. And I guess back in the 90s, that obviously had a tremendous stigma. How did it affect you and your perception of people living with HIV? Hmm, that's that's a good question. Yeah. So when my parents, my parents divorced when I was like 11, I think, and my dad very quickly met this woman and she was HIV positive. Which, of course, when I first found that out, I was so freaked out because I was in this school that was telling me, like, AIDS is the devil. And, like, you know, that it was that world. Like, no, like, don't don't talk to them. Don't touch them. And I was suddenly found myself living in this house as, as a, a preteen teenager with her and realizing, watching through the acts of my dad, how he didn't, like, have any concerns about it. And there wasn't, like, this, like, oh, my God, protect her in a bubble and don't touch her and, like, all that stuff. Like, don't be near her when she's holding a knife, like, stuff like that. And I think just being around that and seeing their 
interaction made me realize like, whoa, 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 why are we so careful about this? Like, you know, it kind of desensitized me to like, realize like we like it's not this scary scary thing anymore and also it even enforced that more and i'm actually like i think right now i'm just processing this too is she had a bunch of gay friends and so like i when i was like 12 this was probably one of my first exposures to gay people in society in north carolina and i remember just thinking like oh my god that's such a nice community and they're funny and like it's so welcoming and they don't care like they were just like seem like wow why is their life so fun and so that really like helped me realize like okay it's not this thing to be scared of of course there's precautions to take if you're in that position with somebody but like it's not something that we need to be like so terrified of as they as it was a right. thing in the 80s. And today, actually, we as gay men, we stu- we still have to take care of ourselves. There's, you know, PrEP for pe- those people mm-hmm. listening that don't know what that is. People take PrEP or PEP. It's a, uh, it's a pill you take every day and it basically prevents you from contracting HIV. Right. I did not know that. This is news to me. That, I mean, like, how does that – I don't know if you know, like, the science behind it or anything, but how does that – like, when did that come about? Just not that long ago. It was like five, yeah. maybe um, five, five years ago, four years ago, something like that. PEP is like post-exposure. Okay. So you can take a pill after X amount of, within X amount of hours after, and it also prevents anything. It will kill the virus with inside you. Wow. Well, thank God for science. Yeah. I mean, totally. And, you know, they say that we're five to 10 years out from a, from an actual cure. People actually think that we actually have a cure. I read the other day that the somebody that they, that somebody was essentially cured of it. I mean, obviously we're able to see long term how that works out, but yeah, I mean, like it's just I, I I'm I guess I'm wondering how that kind of affected your view on then like the the gay community, like when they because it was very much, you know, a a gay related disease or virus. And so it's like, you know, to have a a woman that's contracted it, do you think that that kind of gave you a little bit more perspective or or was it confusing? Like, I don't know. I, just- I think it gave me perspective because I remember being in that worldviews class my senior year and like watching those commercials and like being like, okay, I understand this, but also I've met these people and they're not this, you know, that, that gave me that perspective of like, yeah, like this is not accurate. But you were having that feeling, Brad, but, but also trying to repress the fact. Right. That you felt that way, I'm sure, because you, you're yep. like, why I shouldn't like these people. I shouldn't see them yeah. as... I had to keep up appearances and like be this like shiny uh, president of the Save to Serve Club. That, see, that's the whole thing with the microcosm of being Southern in general, I think. We do have to keep... I mean, the whole culture is keeping up appearances. Who, what's your family name? You know, who, who are you from? You know, where are you from? Oh, I know them. You know, that kind of thing. And um, you you compound that with kind of a culty, <laughs> you know, religion, and it just it's just the most judgy. They they you know they feign non no judgment, but you know, in reality, they're judging everybody. And you know, which is like you can sit the here. number you can one sit here. You rule just can't is sit like here. <laughs> thou shall not judge. Like it's just like <laughs> I it, it 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 just it gets me that I I've never heard to that like one way mirror of separation of church and state like that and it explains I think a lot of what is going on now and has gone on for a long time of oh okay yeah mm-hmm. no y'all say that but we we know what it's really all about and that means it doesn't apply to oh, us yeah. so exactly. you know we're not going to do that. 
Yeah. And it's like the whole thing of like, everyone's welcome. It's like, everyone's welcome parentheses so we can judge you and pray for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's really what it, that's how I see it now looking back at that place. Well, I mean, I am, uh, you know, I just still, still in amazed that you made it out in one piece, to be honest. <laughs> and I'm so glad you had that. You know, I'm, I'm really glad that you and your mom are now so close and that you did also have that kind of different perspective from your dad and his girlfriend. So I guess, you know, how... I'd like to know kind of how do you see relationships now? Does your past trauma with any of that ever come into the present? And does it control kind of a narrative in your brain? And how do you silence that noise that that was built up from there? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I And I think truly that's something right, right now I feel like I talk with my therapist about is like how like all of this trauma from growing up is impacting my relationships and how I'm navigating it. Because like, I'm in a great relationship right now with my boyfriend, Adam. And, you know, like I want to show up for him and show up in the best way. And then sometimes I do catch myself in moments being like, why am I feeling this way? I shouldn't feel this way. And then I bring it and like have to like navigate like, oh, this is the coding that like was really baked into my brain for 13 years uh, being in that school. This is the lens I'm seeing this from. Okay, step outside of that. Oh, that's why that's processing that way. That's why you're feeling this certain air about it. So that's been really interesting to like not judge myself lately. If I feel like I'm reacting to a certain situation in my close relationships, even with friends, to not judge it right away. Just be like, wait, what's going on? Okay, I see. I'm seeing it through this like weird lens, and I can like now kind of try to rewrite that. Um, with my more, you know, woke brain. <laughs> Just reminds me like of, of like kind of a real concrete example. We, we interviewed um, Lair Torrent, a, a, you know, he's a, a therapist who just really awesome, like, person in general as far as kind of recognizing that all a lot of trauma that we experience later on in life is a result of, you know, your inner child and like what you were exposed to when you were younger. And it's just like, this is a, a concrete example of that, that you were battling so many things at the same time. You finally kind of figure it out, but then it's going to keep coming out until you, until you really hash it out. Yeah. Do you think the self-awareness of this, Brad, sort of confronting and not judging yourself came from therapy? I think so, yeah. And I mean, I think the biggest thing that's come from it is also therapy, also I did the artist way, that like really great journaling book for artists to like discover their vision. Like I love that. But through that and through therapy, I really started journaling a lot. And like I still do a lot of writing practices for that. I feel like writing just has been my outlet to like hash out what I'm feeling and to like look at it objectively and be like, this is what's happening. So you journal? Yeah, I journal. Oh, and wow. like one of the exercises that I've loved in past therapy is where they've been like, just write your story one chapter at a time, like see it like one year of your life and whatever you can remember from that year of your life, just write it in there. And then we'll talk about it because it kind of like makes you realize like how you're telling your story and how you perceive you grew up. And then that kind of informs the lens you're seeing your current It really life goes through. to kind of the part of the question that, that Todd asked was like the narrative that everybody kind of builds up in their head and to like actually see it on paper. Sometimes you're like, 
oh my God, I'm ridiculous. Like not like I'm ridiculous <laughs> and as a person, but like that's a ridiculous thought and I need to like now that I've gotten it out, it it's you know, it's 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 out there and it's out of my brain. And, yeah. and so I, I'm a huge journaler too. Like I, I do it even on my phone, just in like my um, notes app. I will just like write if I'm feeling a certain feeling, I'm just like, okay, just write it down and then look at it in like an hour and see if that, if you mm-hmm. still feel that way. And it helps tremendously without being like to not be reactive to, to things and like taking a pause and, and to just say like, okay, that's what I was feeling in that moment. But I am not that moment. I am now in a totally different place and I've processed it. And, and, then, and then that you can prevent so many <laughs> catastrophic discussions or, or, you know, like I just, I really am a big believer. And I've told Todd this a lot about like, if you're upset with someone writing a letter to them and then just throwing it away. Or if you want to mm-hmm. keep it, keep it. But like sometimes like all that stuff that you want to say is not something that you will really necessarily feel great about later on. <laughs> so right. get it yep. out now. That's good. Yeah. And it's like once it's on paper, you can like look at it and judge it like someone else wrote it a little bit and mean like, whoa, 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 you're acting crazy. Calm down. And then it's like it just kind of removes yourself from it a little Did bit. Did you journal when you were younger? No, not at all. I would journal on like vacations because my grandma was always like, write down everything you do every day or you'll, you'll forget it. So I, I have like my little vacation journals, but that's yeah. it. <laughs> well, I think that, you know what, I had the same thing. Like, you know, when whenever we traveled, I would journal. But as I got older, I started to realize that one, a really powerful thing about journaling too is you start to notice patterns of like not only your actions, but other people's actions. And it makes like it helps you to reflect. And on- probably the patterns of the way you're thinking, like the way, the, yeah. how, how you view yourself, how you view other people, how you view the world. I can't, can't imagine that when you're reading it back, you're like, I don't really, I don't think like that, do I? Yeah, right. <laughs> that- yeah. Challenges yourself to like make that change to who you want to be. And Brad, you're also kind of, uh, you're on a spiritual journey. Like you and I went, what's that place that we went to? And I'm, I'm obsessed oh my God. with it now in LA. The- uh, the Kadampa Buddhist Meditation Center in Los Feliz. Go. Yeah. It's, explain it's what great. it is. Explain what it is. It's a, I mean, it's a Buddhist meditation center. And it, it I think, you know, cause it, it's a, it's, in a, it's, a, it's a little like old, actually was a former Methodist church. It's down in my corner and it's now owned by Buddhists and they do like daily meditations there. And you just go in for 30 minutes. It's guided they do like a couple 30 minute meditations a day. They do like Buddhist training courses. They, they do Sunday. This is what I love. They do every Sunday morning, they do an an hour and 15 minute session and it's just a guided meditation. And then like a class on like some aspect of being a good human. And so it feels like this for me, it feels like the structure of religion. Cause I think to me, that's still comforting because that's what I knew growing up, but it's so not like, it's so, they're not talking about God, this God, that they're just talking about like being in a good relationship with someone and perspectives to think about. And it, and then you sit there in silence and you think about it for 15 minutes. I think it's so peaceful and such a beautiful, reverent escape from the world. And so I think, I, I don't know if I identify as a Buddhist, but I think I identify the most right now with that line of thinking. I think you've re-identified the way that you pray. 
I mean, I think, mm. and, 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 and probably go inward with that stuff and, and speak to the universe or God or whatever you believe now, but it's, it sounds like it's just a good place to go. And well, I was there with you. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. You, you go and you just sit there and to sit there in, in silence with your thoughts in a busy city like LA, just to get that hour and 15 minutes of just like, just kind of opening your mind, clearing your mind, clearing the energy. It's pretty powerful. And coming from the South and and that intense religion that you grew up in, it, it is it's such a drastic change. But like you said, it's it's still the oh I'm going to church, but it's a different mm-hmm. kind of church. Yeah, the community is still there, which feels really nice to be meditating in a group of 30, 40 people is really a cool energy to think like we're all sitting in silence and just breathing and like being kind to ourselves in this moment. Yeah, it seems like there's a level of you know it's it's kind of what I feel like most religion should focus more on instead of like the the rules of because you know like nobody really knows <laughs> like the the exactly the, so, no one knows um, i i think the focus and the benefit of a church is the community and the the and and being together that was one thing cuz i you know i was a member of a southern baptist baptist church for a little bit myself and it when you all kind of have this you're all together, there is a feeling of like, we're all grateful at the same time, like kind of we're all speaking to the universe. Just everybody calls it a different thing, you know, that. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm, I'm, I I think that's awesome. I'm, as I keep saying, I am coming out. And so I'm gonna have like 50 things on my list from this podcast that I've said I'm going to do. So I'll be very busy, but I will go to that every day because it sounds really cool. It's great. Yeah. It's yeah, that that can be your your moment of downtime. That's your moment of downtime in yeah. your busy schedule. Yeah. After I go get some like injections by Jen and I get I, oh my God. <laughs> I go to to the the our Todd and I's normal haunts of places that we uh in West Hollywood. But well I just like can't thank you enough for for being so open about this. I think like I said before, it's it is a different perspective than we've have been able to have on the show and and it it shows just how much incredible growth can happen from five to all the way up to you know once you were in college and you finally kind of started to be like no this is who I am so you know I I just really commend you and respect you for that and for sure and I, it does kind of lend itself to we have a tradition on the show and so okay. well, we ask a question of the day and. And I think that this kind of lends itself to what I just said is, is, you know, if you had to be one age for the rest of your life, what age would that be? Ooh. And now I feel like there's all these qualifiers. Like, should it, are you stuck as that person, like that, that look, and then you continue on to be, but I want to hear you. I answer. think we should do it know, knowing what you know okay, now. Okay, knowing what you know now. Hmm. I mean, I truly, I like, I like right where I am right now. So like 35? Yeah, good answer. <laughs> just stay right here. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just stay. I, I like You're done. I like I feel like I finally have like a like not my priorities right, but I feel like I have my priorities most in line now than I ever have. And just I don't know, life well, day to day life an, is really you lovely. have an incredible job. You have an incredible group of friends out here. You have a you you have a great support system. It's beautiful out here. You know, mm-hmm. it's happy. You're in a great relationship. Like, yeah, you're in like the prime of your life. It's amazing. 
Yeah, thanks for saying that. Sometimes it's like it takes someone else saying that to be like, okay, things are okay. And this is <laughs> things are good. amazing. Like, there's a lot you've, to be thankful been, for. You've done how many Broadway shows? Now you're working at Netflix, Brad. You got it. You're, you're <laughs> it's like that day yeah. after he you escaped. <laughs> after the day after he performed his his first thing, and he's like, I thought it would feel a lot more exciting. Yeah. this is you know they always they always say in our business living the dream and i feel like you're now living the actual dream Mm -hmm. can i tell you just on that note really quick is like this week i was on a certain movie lot in la for work and i was there after like late and you know late by my standards which is not that late but the, everything had closed and the security guard like well I, i was there so late the gate i usually go out was closed and like the big like metal gates were shut and I was like, uh oh, I'm stuck. And so I, I was like, how do I get out? And so a security guard was like, okay, you're gonna go down there and when you get to New York, you're gonna go here. And then you're gonna go left and it's like this little village street. And then you're gonna turn right at the church. And then once you go straight down there, you'll pass like a couple sound stages and then there's the gate. And it was one of these moments like driving through alone on a move like a huge move movie studio at night past iconic sets in my little car, just like driving out and I was like whoa, this is like a crazy LA moment. And I was like, this is cool. I have to like soak up this wild moment in LA. Yeah. I mean, that, that I thought you were going to say something like, um, and then I was mugged. But like, no, it's like, <laughs> you're right. That's one of those moments you have to be like, my life is like unreal in a cool way. Yeah, it's really cool. And it's like kind of like taking the Buddhist the Buddhist thing and out into the world every day. Be like being grateful in the moment, mindfulness. I mean, self-awareness, we're all learning this. This is a pattern that, mm-hmm. that, that we all need to to kind of practice more, I think. And yeah, self, I you know, one more thing. I think that the huge thing that I'm hearing from you is that there's been a lot of self-forgiveness. Because I think when you go mm-hmm. through what you went through, Brad, you have to, um, and you know that you're a smart man, you got to go, I forgive myself because I was freaking brainwashed. I forgive yeah. myself for, for hating myself that much and for and for not not allowing myself to be my my true authentic self because that's what you, where you were in it. So it, you have to forgive to move on. So yep. let go, move forward. Exactly. Exactly. Well, this has been mm-hmm. incredible, Brad. We are so happy to have you today. Thank you truly. so much. Thanks for having me. Oh my me. gosh. It was so wonderful to speak to you. And I can't wait to meet you in person when I come out to Same. LA. And, you know, just so in, your your journey has been incredible. And I'm so um, happy for your success. Yeah. Thanks. Well, thank you for coming on. And we'll definitely talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Brad. Bye. Whoa. 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 Just first of all, I I truly love Brad. I, I think that he is one of the most genuine, amazing, sweet humans on this planet. And he embodies what a true friend is. I can call Brad and be like, hey, I'm having a really rough day. And he'll be like, come over and let's order a pizza. Yeah. You know, he's just, he's so wonderful. And he's been through so much. Like I, that, that contract, man. I know. The contract. contracts really got us. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm freaking out a little bit about that. Just that that's something like, I remember when I was in high school and there was like the pledge to not like basically drink. Like, I mean, I knew some schools had like pledge not to give up your virginity on prom, but like ours was like, please pledge not to drink up, you know, after prom or whatever. And I was like, I'm not signing that ridiculous. (laughs) And then to have like him be signing away, literally like the ability to listen to certain CDs and go to the movies. Like that is like 
so next level. I can't even comprehend it. It truly is. And then we we talked after the interview about that they would search their cars and oh see God. what the pre- presets were on the on the radio and see the what CDs they had or the tapes they had in their car because. He's a little younger than you, Todd. <laughs> I know. I, I, had, I had a moment about that today. But listen, he he really, Laura, I mean, I felt like you and I both had goosebumps oh, yeah. the whole time. I mean, he just, he was so, he was so open and vulnerable about his experience, but he's, he truly, just by writing that bio in that program yeah. and that lady saw it and then he went and worked on Broadway just from, the, I mean, it was just like, that was his path. That was, he put, he, I think he had so much within him. He manifested yeah. that moment and he manifested his life. Yeah. Cause I mean, it was so structured and, and dictated that whole time. I mean, I, that's why I keep saying it's like almost like a miracle that he got out of that out. because that. <laughs> really does happen where so many people, I mean, we know this, but so many people, you know, have beards or stay in, you know, marriages just for the society's perspective, especially in the South and to be in that small area. And then also, you know, we, we got to learn a bit, a little bit about his mom's journey with it and that I'm, I'm just grateful that, that that came out as a, a good outcome. And, but I'm sure it was really hard at the time. Now they talk all, they talk all the time and they're super close like you said. Like and that you know it is beautiful. It's yeah. beautiful. I mean, I just think all around it was I, I know that we've had several you know gay guys on here that have all given us different perspectives on different things and not necessarily just being gay, but that you know that that was a very unique story that I, I just hope that people there are people out there that are in that same maybe possibly even currently in that situation or still recovering from that situation. Kind of, it go, takes me back to Susan Hayward talk like the spiritual abuse in a way of that, that that is something a lot of people have to overcome because it, it, it gets so into your head that like, how are you? Well, gonna- the fact that he called it brainwashing yeah. that, that when he started off the interview calling that saying that he was brainwashed, I'm sure that he learned that he was brainwashed through therapy. I mean, mm-hmm. learned to give it a name because, and to, and to admit that you were brainwashed is, is a huge thing in itself because it's accepting that you were abused. Yeah. So I think that, but he, he's clearly overcome so much. He continues and, to, you could tell he like had some like revelations a little bit on the podcast itself where he's like, he well, now I'm just now realizing that that, and that, you know, that's what this is all about. Like nobody's all the way done. And, but he has, I still, yeah, the contract is just like seared in my brain right now. And I just like, can't with it. So I'm just so glad that he's, and, and, down you're, to and you're an attorney. So you're like, how, what? I know. I, it's, <laughs> I mean, I was saying that even to him, um, when we talked a little bit afterwards, it's like, as an attorney, I'm like, I mean, that that's illegal. You're signing a contract with a minor, but no, this is really just a policy issue. And it went down this whole rabbit hole, but yeah. I like a part of me is like wants to sue this school. Um, <laughs> well, he said they're still doing it, which I'm like, Well, the fact they the took hell? him off the, I, I'm calling, I don't know which school it is. You know who you are. The fact you took him off of that. I mean, I, uh, obviously this is something you very strongly are anti. So, but like, I hope you know that, you are making a grave mistake and that that is i don't know i just think that it's 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 sad that there's still so many people in this world that can't accept 
people for and when who he they would t- are. When he, exactly. And when he talked about that worldviews class, oh, about how Christians view the, are supposed to view the world, I'm like, by whose lens? Who is determining how all Christians are supposed to view the world? Exactly. Who? Yeah. Well, God. The, God is. The, okay, God, the bu- Old Testament, New Testament. What are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, I know. Exactly. Let's uh, cherry pick the crap out of this and tell you what is the worldview. I, I don't think that there's... Uh, listen, I, I have my own relationship with God. I'm sure you have your own... The yeah, universe, yes. God, whatever, the higher power. We And and we and I think we have our reverence for for this this being, this entity, but people use it as a as a tool to abuse and to oppress people and to make people feel bad about being who they are it's for just their it's, own it's, agenda like it's like and it, that's where that's i it. that's where i get really confused like what how is it serving you to be bossing these people around about like who and what they have to be as people and how they should see church and state like how you should interpret that when it's vastly different from the rest of most of America. Exactly. It's like the audacity. Yeah. Like the actual audacity of these freaking people. Uh, it's just, you know, you're hurting children. You're hurting children who then become, they grow up and become adults and have to live normal lives with all different types of people in the world. And you have created such a prejudice in their mind about of other people and how other people live that for them to even accept them, it's almost like it goes against everything in their being because you have bashed it into them. With this religious uh, abuse. It's insane. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's just, it, it, it kind of gets me worked up. So maybe we should, maybe we should take a little bit of a chill pill and, and ask, yeah. take some breaths. So let me ask you, <laughs> if you had to be one age for the rest of your life, knowing what you know now, what age would that be? Well, I, I definitely feel like I'm copying him a little bit, but I'd have to say, you know, where I'm at right now. Is, really? is a really, is a really great place. Like, I mean, there's lots of ages I could say, oh, I had when I was 21 and I was like super skinny and was, um, the event planner for my sorority, whatever. Those are like cool memories, but you know, knowing what I know now, I feel more comfortable in who I am as a person than I ever have in my entire life. And I was always one of those people that was kind of like, I couldn't wait to be an adult. (laughs) Like I remember being in high school and I went to a therapist in high school and was like, I'm just so tired of all these children. Like I am ready to move on to college. (laughs) I think this is. Well, we didn't discuss that you were in a sorority. I didn't realize you were actually Elle Woods. Um, yeah, kind of, I guess in a way, well, it was, it was the, it was the, the cool sorority. I mean, we were the, we were the, the partiers. Of course it was. Yeah. I mean, we just like, we were there for, for a good time, not for. What was your sorority? Time. What was the, what was the. Kyle Mega. Hoot hoot to everybody oh. out there. Kyle, shout out. But you know, if, if you want to say like differences between like religions and relate them to a sorority, that was like the most open-minded Kind of sorority because there are some sororities that are kind of like they're culty, kind of skull and bones situation where you weird stuff be happening. So yeah, yeah. no, I guess that's a new fact that you learned about me. But it's you know it's that that was a fun part of my life. But this right now, I and I dare I say you know probably I will feel even more so wanting like when I'm forty of wanting to to stay there because I you know I think that. I've I've heard many, many times from people that women, a lot of times in their 40s, like really come into themselves. So, you know, it's one of those things for me, instead of dreading it, I'm like really looking forward to that. 
So if you could choose what age you would stay at for the rest of your life, what would it be? This is hard because I felt like the age that I was like killing the game. I'm killing the game in a different way now because I do try to push myself constantly to be a better version of myself and to be proactive. And I try to be productive in my career and my life. So I would love to say right now, but right now, you know, is a is an intense time in my life. And so I feel like I when I was on tour with like We Will Rock You and then I was doing Memphis and at the you know winning the Ovation Award, I think that was probably one of the highlight the biggest highlights of my life was when I was career when I was achieving the things that I wanted to achieve. So that was like what, you know, 5 5 well, that was 2000 Wow, that was like 2015. So uh, I'm about to turn 40. So y'all do the math. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, I do think that that was a great time. If I had to choose, I loved that part of my life because it was such a feeling. Like it was like you felt fulfilled. Yeah, and I think that the best is yet to come in a way. Yeah. So if I had to choose another age, maybe I would go to something I don't know. Maybe I would do 50. Yeah. Because I want to see what the next. Yeah. I just I don't know. It's it's like. It's like you would, you, you want to, I think life is so glorious in so many ways when you can just experience it and not, Brad said something where he was like, you know, I'm trying not to judge myself. I'm trying, trying to judge how the way I think anymore. And so God, the, the age. Well, that, I mean, that was like, after this whole conversation, I was like, this question is going to be a lot deeper than I really thought it was going to be, you know, because that's, I feel like, because I've come out the other end on a lot of things with my, you know, my divorce and, and loss and things that I've gone through and worked through so much with my therapist that, you know, that I do see that other side and that I know going forward that I can, that I can do hard things and that I can recover from them. And so in a way it's like, I'm almost like what kind of amazing revelations like are yet to come about everything. And because you start to learn that it's not about, I, I totally understand the feeling of like, you know, the year we we opened the beer garden, like I would say that was like the most exhilarating time ever. And I felt so accomplished, but, you know, I, I didn't at that time, I, I still lived in kind of a, a, a place where I did still judge myself. And I still did like take criticism very, very harshly. And and now I've kind of I have a new perspective. I just feel and like that's wonderful. Know. That's that's like that's that's kind of the dream, to be honest with you. That's probably why you and Brad are like, because you probably are like, well, I'm really present right now. Yeah. So I'm because I'm so present right now, I, I could stay here. Yeah. Yeah. That's I want to keep kind, being kind of present. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I'm striving to get more present. Yeah, you're getting there. Life. You're getting there. And then this podcast is helping you, I think. Oh my I mean, God. Doing, doing, talking about trauma every day at 9am on Saturday <laughs> and Sunday, great. every weekend. It is, it, it really is making me psychoanalyze everyone in my life. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're feeling the same way. Like, <laughs> but like now knowing this about Brad, like he really, he really brought it today and he was really vulnerable and really open about his horrific experience. Yeah. But he still, he still has so much like, yeah, that happened. It was terrible. And I was brainwashed and, but now my life is great. So I went through that for a reason. It's that, that's what I heard. Yeah. And I think it, it kind of goes back to our episode with Sarah where she's like, I, you know, went through all this horrific loss, but it's like, then you are kind of like, you have an armor on you that, that thicker skin of like, I overcame that. So, I mean, 
come at me. Yeah, this come whole, me, this whole idea of the armor. I mean, Brad clearly has has. I mean, wouldn't you have an armor after going through all have that? Have to. I mean, there's no for way to, to to try to describe the cognitive dissonance that 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 Brad had to go through on a daily basis while he's you know was president of I don't remember what exactly the club <laughs> was, but I just I, you know that that is trauma in and of itself. And then to, to rise above that is, is incredible. So I'm just, you know, I feel like I've, I've a broken record, but I'm just extremely impressed by him. And I was, it was for me a very delightful combo because I, I felt like it was talking to somebody who has really dealt with their shit and I'm and continuing and continuing, and continuing in therapy, which yes. is so important, y'all. Get a therapist. Get a everybody therapist, on, everybody listening, get a therapist. Can, can't tell you the things that you will learn about yourself oh, and the experiences sure. you've gone through. Well, thank you, Brad, so much. Brad Gardner, everybody. Thank you so much for coming yes, on the program. Thank you, Brad. And everybody go check him out on his website. We'll put everything in the show notes, but just an incredible person. So thank you so much. And as always, Todd, I love seeing your beautiful face. You too. And I will see you next week. See you next week. Bye-bye.